1: Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy.
2: Hello, welcome to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Coming up this month, What might it be like to live on a planet around a star other than our own Sun? The Space Telescope, which will soon be mapping out the structure of our galaxy. And an update on the comet, which will soon be skimming close to the Sun's surface. Plus, as always, we've got more answers to your space science questions. If you've got something you'd like us to tackle, you can email astronomy at scientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook.
1: Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
2: One of the areas of research that I've personally found most exciting to follow in the past few years is the search for planets around stars other than our own Sun. These are so-called exoplanets. It was only as recently as 1992 that astronomers found evidence for the first known exoplanet, and we still actually know rather little about what these worlds might be like. Using a technique called transmission spectroscopy, though, astronomers are now starting to glean some clues about what the atmospheres of these planets are made of. I caught up with Catherine Hewitson from the University of Exeter, who explained that the technique relies on waiting for planets to pass in front of their host stars, and then studying the light which is filtered through their atmospheres.
3: We're using a technique called transmission spectroscopy, which has been in use for about 10 years or so. So what it does is, when you see the planet pass in front of the star, like the recent transit of Venus, you can actually see the starlight be filtered through the atmosphere, and characteristic absorption lines of specific elements and molecules are imprinted on the filtered spectrum. So we use that to look for different species in the atmosphere of these planets.
2: So essentially by seeing what colours of light are passing through and being absorbed by the atmosphere of the planet, you can start to work out what that atmosphere is made of?
3: Yes, that's right. Essentially we know what we expect to see and then we look for absorption in these particular wavelengths that tell us whether those compounds are present in the atmosphere.
2: I guess given that planets are much smaller than stars in general the diminishment of light that you see when a planet transits a star is quite small. It must be really incredibly difficult to get a spectrum of that light was being absorbed.
3: Yeah, so um, we're looking at Jupiter-sized planets. Well, we're looking at hot Jupiter, so they tend to be a little bit bigger than Jupiter, a bit puffy. And they're very close to the star, so that's why we see quite a large signal. So that's why we're not able to look at Earth-like planets yet. So we're still developing the technique to be able to do that. So what we look for is we try to pick targets or planets which are very large, which are orbiting stars which are quite small, so that the light dimming when the planet goes in front of the star is large.
2: And because these planets are puffy, as you put it, I guess there's a lot more atmosphere there to absorb the light, whereas the Earth's atmosphere is quite a thin layer on its surface.
3: Yeah, so because they're they're very close to the star, they get heated, so they increase their size. So for that reason, the features that we see are quite large. Essentially, the atmosphere is inflated.
2: What instruments are you using to make these measurements?
3: We're using the Hubble Space Telescope, and we're using spectrometers from the optical to the near-infrared.
2: I guess the molecule that F F1's interested in is water, because that's obviously the molecule that's needed for life. Have you found the evidence of that?
3: Well, we have found evidence of water as steam, because this planet's so hot, so it's not going to be liquid water. But we have seen a water feature so that's interesting, again, because we have seen the feature that we expect, whereas in previous planets, observations have shown that the feature is muted. It's like the planet is covered in clouds, and you only see part of the feature. So it's interesting to see that in this planet, we actually see the feature we expect. So there's a surprising diversity in the planets that I've studied so far, which is the reason we're doing a survey, to try and understand whether planets are different and why.
2: We've also got Hannah Wakeford here from the University of Exeter. Hannah, what else do we know about the environments of these planets?
4: So these are actually, these are truly strange worlds. They're actually tidally locked to their star, which means that one face of the planet is continuously facing the heat, the irradiation from that star. And that means that the day side of that planet is really very, very hot, up to about 1,500 degrees Kelvin and... What we're actually looking at through transmission spectroscopy is the limb, the kind of edge of atmosphere around the side, kind of the bridge between the day side and the night side of that planet. So we're really also looking at the different temperature ranges that we're getting between those two. And these water features that we're seeing are actually slightly cooler than what has been measured for the day side of these planets, which is another really, really interesting result, seeing how the winds, how the different environments on those planets are transporting that heat from the day side to the cold night side of them.
2: So it's fascinating how much we're learning about these exoplanets beyond us. their masses, their sizes. We're really starting to learn what these might be like as worlds. But these aren't very Earth-like worlds. You've hinted that you want to move this technique to something that's a bit more similar to our own planet. How much more difficult is that going to be?
4: Yeah, you're right. These are really not hospitable worlds. You wouldn't want to go there for a holiday so to move that technique forward a bit, we really need to develop the technology a lot more. But what we're doing is really kind of laying the foundation for what we understand about looking at these molecules, looking at these fingerprints. And if we can understand them in something as big as these hot Jupiters, where the signatures should be really very clear because the atmosphere is so extended, we can really refine the techniques right down to the point where we can confidently say, when we've found these other planets and we've got better instruments to look at them, We know what that feature is. We have evidence from previous studies that we know what we're looking for, and we've got it right here.
2: I guess the molecules that everyone is interested in are molecules like oxygen, which are bio-tracers of life. How far away are we from detecting those, do you think?
4: Oxygen's a particularly difficult one, and that's difficult because of the wavelength ranges it lies in and the intensity of the feature. And due to the intensity of the feature, it's quite small compared to other molecules. It's going to be quite difficult to find oxygen itself. But what we can look for is an imbalance in these atmospheres. So where is there being CO2 or other molecules like water? Where is there more methane? And is there an imbalance from what we would expect from these worlds? And that would kind of be indicative of something that is producing these different molecules rather than it occurring naturally in nature.
2: Now, Catherine, you've been using the Hubble Space Telescope for these observations. I guess to move this further, are you going to have to use purpose-built observatories?
3: Yeah, so hopefully James Webb will be flying soon and that will be specifically looking more in the infrared and the near-infrared which is where we'd expect to see features such as water and methane. That should hopefully really take over.
2: Hannah, there has been talk of purpose-built observatories for looking at the spectra of planets. I'm thinking of Darwin in particular. Does it look like any of those missions are actually going to fly any time soon?
4: So unfortunately, uh, Darwin is dead, it's not around, we're not flying that mission. But there's always talks, as proposals every few years where you can put forward these different telescope ideas. And it's really important that we go into space for these, so that means that there's that higher cost and that higher risk with it. So yes, there are things in the works, but of course, the space mission proposals are years and years in the future. It took from 84 to 2009 to get Kepler up, so... Watch this space, we'll definitely have something.
2: That was Hannah Wakeford from the University of Exeter, and we also heard from her colleague, Catherine Hewitson. We have growing evidence that many of the stars of the night sky have planets circling around them, but where did those stars themselves come from? Our own galaxy, the Milky Way, is a grouping of around 100 billion stars, and all of the brightest stars visible in the night sky are part of this family. A group of astronomers who call themselves astroarchaeologists hope that if they can map out where these 100 billion stars of the galaxy are, and they can work out how fast they're moving and how old they are, they can wind back the clock to work out where those stars formed. Lennart Lindegren from the Lund Observatory in Sweden is working on a new space telescope that will do exactly that.
5: Gaia is a satellite designed to survey about one billion stars in our galaxy, and one of the main results from it will be distance determinations to many of these stars so that we get a truly three-dimensional map of our galaxy.
2: The problem astronomers face is that while they can measure where stars are on the night sky very accurately, it's much harder to know how far away those stars are. The technique scientists are using relies on the annual rotation of the Earth around the Sun. If you nod your head from side to side, that allows you to judge how far away objects are by how fast they move. Similarly, by looking at how much stars appear to shift from side to side as the Earth circles around the Sun, Gaia can infer their distances, as Lennart's colleague David Hobbes explains. So basically the Earth just goes
6: around the Sun once every year and our satellite is somewhere around the earth of course and by looking at nearby stars then you see they're in one position in july and then if you look at them in january you see they've shifted to another position and if you actually do that and you can do it in nice video plots you see that it traces out a nice oval on the sky and then the angle of that oval gives you the parallax measurement which you can convert then into a distance with a simple formula
5: So over the five years that Gaia will be working, the stars will be seen to wobble back and forth by a tiny amount, depending on their distance. The nearer the star is, the bigger is this wobble. So by measuring this small angle, we can get the distance to the stars.
2: So these stars are nodding back and forth in the sky. I guess that motion must be very small, given how distant these stars are from us.
6: Yeah, when we show videos of this wobbling, of course, we exaggerate it by a factor of 100,000 or something like that. And that's the reason why you need a very highly precise
2: satellite to do these measurements. The technique of using the parallaxes of stars to determine their distances has a long history in Sweden and Denmark. The idea was actually first pioneered over 400 years ago by Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe, who used it in 1572 to prove that the supernova he saw was genuinely a distant astronomical object, rather than some strange kind of weather in the Earth's atmosphere, as other astronomers believed at the time.
5: Yes, that is right. He used that method to prove that the new star, the Stella Nova, which was discovered in 1572, was actually further away than the Moon, which was a revolutionary discovery at that time. So now we are using this method since 200 years to measure distances to stars, which is, of course, much more difficult because since the stars are more distant than the Moon, for example, the parallax will become very small. And when we want to measure distances to stars in the other end of the galaxy, for example, these stars are... Very, very distant, so the parallax becomes very small and therefore it is difficult to measure, which is why we can't do it until now.
2: So, TK was doing this with comets back in 1572. When were we first able to measure the parallax of a star?
5: The first really successful or convincing measurement of a stellar parallax was made by Friedrich Wilhelm Bessel in 1838. He was working in Königsberg in Germany and he measured the distance to the star number 61 in the constellation Cygnus that was a real breakthrough in the history of astronomy because astronomers had tried to measure parallax for centuries and this was the first convincing detection of the parallax
2: What's Gaia adding to that I guess by being in space you haven't got the distortion of the Earth's atmosphere
5: Yes that's right that's very important the atmosphere has been an obstacle for accurate parallax measurement until 1989, when the European Space Agency launched the HIPACO satellite, which was the first satellite designed to measure parallaxes from space. And it did that very well, with an accuracy of about a thousandth of an arc second, but only for about 100,000 stars, and only stars rather close to the Sun. With Gaia, we want to measure many more stars and many more distant stars, and therefore we need uh, much more accurate measurements.
6: Gaia is 100 to 1,000 times more accurate than Hipparchus, just because of the new instrumentation. But the measurement principle is basically the same. If you think of Hipparchus and you plot what kind of scale Hipparchus could see for a solar-type star, for example, on top of the galaxy, then you'll see that Hipparchus could only see very locally. It's a little dot on the galaxy, basically. It certainly wouldn't be much bigger than just sticking your pen on a piece of paper. But if you take Gaia, then you can see that the distance scales that Gaia can probe for the same kind of star is very far out. For solar-like stars, Gaia can probably see out about 8 kiloparsecs with an accuracy of 10 to 20%. And that's in astrometry is considered to be very good. But then for very bright stars, Gaia can see right the way across the galaxy.
2: We often hear about exoplanets being discovered by their gravitational pull, causing stars to wobble back and forth. I guess there are a lot of other phenomena that you're having to distinguish this wobble from.
6: Yeah, of course. So what we do is we build models of how the light should enter the telescope, basically. You have to take into account a great many things. Of course, the finite speed of light, for example, this is known as the Romer correction, has to be put into the time measurements even. Then you have the parallax wobble, as I mentioned, but also you have the light deflection in the solar system. So you have to have a model of general relativity, which is an extremely accurate model. It must be more accurate than the final precision of Gaia. So we have to have a micro arc second relativity model.
2: So the issue there is that the bodies in the solar system bend light because of their gravitational fields. Yeah, sure.
6: And you have to take this into account. And of course, the sun, for example, at 90 degrees to the sun, you're still getting 4,000 micro arc 2nd light bending. So it's an enormous effect. So you have to take the sun's light deflection into all measurements. You typically also want to take Jupiter's light deflection into account because Jupiter is a very large body also. And you also, interestingly enough, have to take the Earth and the Moon into account, or you should take the Earth and the Moon, because the light deflection is very weak from the Earth and the Moon, but they're very close to Gaia. They're only 1.5 million kilometers away, so you should also take that into account. And, of course, then the other planets also have some effect. We actually use the measurements of Gaia. We take all of the measurements of Gaia together, and we try to use that to test, does Gaia tell us that Einstein is right, for example, and the point about Gaia is we have so many measurements that we think we can make the most accurate test of light deflection due to general relativity and Einstein's theory and so on possible.
2: Obviously, it's interesting from the point of view of natural history to make a catalogue of these distances to the stars in the night sky. What scientifically can we get out of that catalogue?
5: Well, first of all, it can give us a detailed map of the structure of our galaxy as we see it on the night sky we only have a two dimensional image of the galaxy so getting the third dimension is very important for understanding the large scale structure of our Milky Way but also the individual distances to the stars are very important to understand their physics you need to know the distance to a star to translate the brightness on the sky to the real luminosities of the stars and get their physical properties so All kinds of astronomy will
2: benefit from this information. Is that structure telling you about how our galaxy formed, how it's evolved, where it's come from?
5: That is one of the scientific aims of Gaia, to try to understand the history of our galaxy. It is thought that a big galaxy like ours is partly composed of many smaller galaxies that have been eaten up by our galaxy they have simply fallen into our galaxy and it may be possible to identify which stars came from different infalling galaxies in the past and therefore know a little bit of the history
2: of how the galaxy was assembled Gaia is going to launch is it November or December this year what's happening at the moment? At the moment the satellite
5: is going through the flight acceptance review which means that The engineers and scientists responsible for putting together the satellite check that everything is in order. And it appears that it is there. So it will get the go ahead for launch in November, December, hopefully.
6: Gaia is ready to go today. It just has to be shipped to South America and then it's ready for launch. So it has to be flown down in two parts. The sunshield and the spacecraft go separately because the sunshield is so big. And then there's no storage facilities in French Guyana, so it has to be more or less mounted once it gets there and so on and be ready. An Antonov uh, Russian airplane was booked to send it down there in July, and then they were told, no, you can't go. The problem is there was a conflict with some GPS satellites being launched. And because of that conflict, then Gaia got shoved back a little bit. So we've been pushed back by two months now till November, December. And there's a launch window in November, December, which is more or less defined by where the moon is, for example. You don't launch into the moon. (laughs) So we have certain dates where we can launch. And we've now been assigned this new launch date from the 17th of November to the 5th of December. And hopefully it'll go then because the spacecraft is sitting there and all the tests are done. It's really ready to fly. People are just doing
2: some last minute monitoring of the spacecraft at the moment. And once it's up, how long until we start getting scientific data back from it?
6: Yeah, well, the first thing it has to be sent into a transfer orbit to the L2 Lagrange point, which is 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth. As it is flying out, the sun shield will be opened. The spacecraft is cooling thermally. So once the sun shield is open, it can actually take measurements. But those measurements will be probably quite poor to begin with because the thermal cooling of the spacecraft takes a month or so. And also the transfer journey takes a month or so. But people will actually start taking measurements because the sooner you get something, even though it's very inaccurate, uh,
2: you can start testing your data reduction scheme with it. When can we expect the first scientific results to come out from that?
5: Some preliminary results will come already about two years after the launch but that will not be very accurate. So as it accumulates more data and they are processed, we will have successively more accurate results. And the final results, which is what all the astronomers are hoping for, will come around 2021. So there is a long time to wait.
2: Lennart Lindegren from the Lund Observatory, and we also heard from his colleague, David Hobbs. A little later, we'll be returning to Gaia, to hear from one of the astronomers who's waiting to use those results to form profiles of where the Milky Way's stars came from. But first, to the more distant universe. Gamma-ray bursts are intense flashes of radiation that appear in the night sky, but often fade again within a few seconds. Even though they were first seen over 40 years ago, there's still a hot debate among astronomers as to what causes them. But writing in Nature this month, Professor Neil Tanvir from the University of Leicester thinks he's found strong evidence that at least some of the bursts are triggered by collisions between neutron stars or black holes.
7: So gamma-ray bursts were discovered in the 1960s, in fact, by military satellites, which had been put into orbit to look for clandestine nuclear explosions, which might be being conducted in space and instead of seeing any of those, they detected flashes of gamma rays, high-energy radiation, coming from somewhere, as far as they knew, beyond the solar system. What we have subsequently found out about them is that they're coming, in fact, from other galaxies, and it seems that there are a number of different kinds of very high-energy, powerful mechanisms which can give rise to these flashes of gamma
2: rays. And how are we going about observing them? Is this basically Geiger counters in space?
7: That's a pretty good description, actually. So the light in the form of these gamma rays, because they're high-energy kinds of radiation, the photons of light, the little particles of light, act really more or less like particles that you might get off a radioactive substance. And so if you put a detector in on a spacecraft to detect these things, then indeed they detect each individual photon as they arrive. Now, the tricky thing with that kind of technology, of course, is trying to tell where the gamma rays are coming from because you don't tend to get very good directional information. You tend to just sort of register that a photon has arrived. So there has to be a whole sort of sequence of trying to use other telescopes to refine the positions until eventually we nail the exact location of, of each gamma ray burst that we're interested in.
2: In Nature this week, you were talking about observations of one particular gamma ray burster you saw back in June. And what was surprising about that, I gather, was that it faded so very quickly after it initially flared up. What was the surprise there for you?
7: This was a so-called short-duration gamma ray burst. One of the things we've learned after all these decades of research is that gamma ray bursts come in a number of different types, which we believe have really quite different origins, even though they look rather similar to each other. And so the short duration bursts, the initial flash of gamma rays only lasts probably less than a second, and that was the case with this one that happened in June. Then after that, although it was quite a bright burst, it did fade very rapidly. So following the initial flash of gamma rays, what we tend to see with with all gamma ray bursts is a slowly declining sort of ember of light that we call the afterglow, and we see that actually in different kinds of light, including optical and infrared and radio and x-rays, or basically the whole electromagnetic spectrum. In this case, the afterglow faded away apparently very quickly, and that's not too surprising. It's within the range of behavior that we often see. But what was special was that we observed the location of the gamma-ray burst again after about nine days with the Hubble Space Telescope. And given how fast the afterglow had been fading. We, in a sense, expected not to see anything at that point. But in fact, in the infrared pictures we took with the Hubble, we did see some light still there. And of course, we had anticipated this might be the case because people had speculated that the process that produces the short-duration gamma ray bursts might also produce a sort of long-lived radioactive afterglow as well in addition to the, the normal afterglow something that we call a kilonova.
2: So how much do we know about what's actually causing these flashes in the sky?
7: The gamma ray bursts that we see have, as I say, a number of different subcategories and the the ones that we see most often are what we call long duration gamma ray bursts and they seem to be produced by some kind of core collapse supernova now. What that is is a, a massive star at the end of its life it runs out of fuel and so gravity just starts to work on it and in a very short space of time, the whole thing collapses. And it seems that in the process of doing that, in some cases, it produces a jet of material that, as the star is collapsing, this jet thrusts its way out at extraordinary velocities, very close to the speed of light. And if we happen to be looking down the the axis of that jet, then we see this flash, and that is your long-duration gamma ray burst. Now, in the case of the short-duration gamma ray burst that uh, we're talking about now, The mechanism, we think, is quite different. And there we think that, again, we do have a jet, but it's created by the coalescence, the merging of two so-called neutron stars. So neutron stars are incredibly dense objects. In fact, they're formed as the remnants of other kinds of supernova explosion. And with a neutron star, you have essentially something like the mass of the sun compressed into a ball about the size of a town just a few miles across, that is to say. So you've got an incredibly dense object, the densest objects we know of in the universe apart from black holes. And the idea is that if you have two neutron stars in orbit around each other, then their orbits gradually decay until eventually the two things crash into each other. And that can release an enormous amount of energy and Again, by mechanisms that we really don't understand well at all, it seems that that can produce a super-fast jet of material, producing, in this case, a short-duration gamma-ray burst.
2: So is the idea that this gamma-ray burst has a very short duration because you've got two very compact objects, they're merging very quickly, perhaps forming a black hole, which is very rapidly absorbing any material that might form an afterglow?
7: That's more or less exactly right, yes. So the natural timescales for that final sort of merging event is really very short, much less than a second, in fact. And so the whole process, the energy release, happens really quickly, and so that then seems plausible that that results in the short-duration flash. The extra ingredient that really has come out of the new observations is this kilonova light, And, and what that is thought to be produced by is that as these two neutron stars are undergoing their final death spiral as they come into towards each other, a certain amount of the material of them is thrown out into space, is sort of ripped off each of the stars, thrown out into space, and because it's a super-dense form of matter, once it's away from the neutron star itself, this fairly small percentage of the total mass of the star, but once it's ripped out of the, the neutron star, it expands very rapidly and forms this sort of radioactive ball of material, and it's the radioactivity from the, that material that was thrown out that gives rise, we believe, to the later time emission after, after nine days or so. One of the really interesting possibilities that's opened up by the discovery of this kilonova is there's been a long-standing mystery as to the origin of certain elements in the universe, particularly what we call heavy elements, ones with big, heavy atoms. And that includes certain very well-known, familiar elements, such as gold and platinum. And those are elements which we haven't really got an explanation for why they exist in the universe. And it's long been thought that they might be made in supernovae. On the other hand, that turns out to be quite difficult whereas merging neutron stars of the type that I've described look exactly the sort of place where such elements should be made in abundance. So it may be that all of the, say, the gold in your jewellery had its origin, an event like this that predated the, the formation of the solar system somewhere nearby in our galaxy where two neutron stars merged, sprayed a quantity of these heavier elements out into the gas clouds of the Milky Way, which then subsequently collapsed and formed the solar system and the Earth and everything that we see today.
2: My thanks to Neil Tanvir from the University of Leicester. You're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford, and now it's time to find out what's been in the astronomy news this month with Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society.
1: This month and in the next few weeks, we've got an interesting Moon Pro going to take off. This is a NASA project and it has the acronym LADI, LADEE, L A D E E E, which stands for Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. And what this one will be doing is traveling to the moon on a very conventional rocket system, orbiting the moon for a period of about 100 days. And the aim of the project is to study the dust that's found on the surface of the moon that might at some point pose a hazard for space missions and also for any
2: explorers in the future. The Moon's a geologically dead environment and we've always sent a lot of spacecraft to it in the past. What more is there to learn about it?
1: The Moon is certainly to all intents and purposes geologically dead in the sense that you're not talking about an environment where there's lots of lava moving around as you have on the Earth, but on the other hand it is active. It's obviously affected by extremes of heat and cold because it doesn't have an atmosphere so that rotates slowly over a period of a month the fact that it's rotating at all will mean that you experience changes and stresses on the rock and so on and the purpose of the mission is to look at this dust that covers the surface now if you imagine a body without an atmosphere that's very vulnerable to anything in the surrounding space environment so meteorites crash down onto the surface essentially unimpeded. And unlike on Earth, even the smallest ones make it straight down onto the ground. And if you have those things on Earth, we'd probably see them as a shooting star. But on the Moon, they crash down to the surface and they grind away at it. And so the surface of the Moon over billions of years, thousands of millions of years, has become made up of this compacted and crushed up rock. And that's essentially what you find there. And a lot of it's very fine. It's in the form of dust. And it can be suspended by electrical charge at various points as well. So if you have an ultraviolet light striking the surface, the stuff that comes from the sun, then it can charge the particles, it can ionize them, stripping off electrons. And what that means is that they can then end up floating because if you get repellent electric charges, that exerts a force, and that force can be enough to lift this material off the surface of the moon. And that's the kind of thing the mission will be looking at.
2: I suppose there's also the interesting factor here that the moon is in some ways very earth-like but in other ways it's not very earth-like
1: there's no really equivalent phenomenon on the earth and that's because we have a thick atmosphere so you know any kind of elevating effects and so on are absolutely dominated by the wind that blows material around instead but it would be something of a problem if you wanted to explore the moon this stuff this very fine dust not only traveling around, particularly in the twilight regions, of the moon, as the moon's rotating. If it was carried into twilight, that would be a bit of a problem because it might actually get dust dumped on top. But also, if you're an astronaut and you go and explore the surface, obviously, you do that in the space
2: Speaking with other bright objects in the night sky, we were hearing earlier in the year about this very bright comet that's going to be in the sky in November. People said it might be the comet of the century. But I gather it might turn out to be a bit of a disappointment.
1: It's contentious. The object that we were looking forward to at the end of the year, and I think still are actually, is Comet ISON, it was discovered by a robotic network of telescopes in Russia. And it's been named after that. Although, to be fair, there are actually a couple of scientists who probably need to be credited for it as well. But this object was thought because it was coming very close to the sun and also was very very active a long way from the sun the supposition was that when it got close into the inner solar system it would become very bright and certainly once it had passed by the sun and was heading out into space again now there is some debate as to whether that's still likely to happen because the activity levels on the comet haven't lived up to expectations now this is actually nothing unusual uh, with comets quite often they can be active when they're far out particularly if they haven't come into the solar system before and that looks like it might be the case for ISON and then the activity can fall off a bit and that seems to be happening here so it may not be quite the object that people were expecting and you know, there's always an unfortunate tendency for these things to be hyped but that said, it could still be quite a nice comet as these things go, it could still be The naked eye late in the year, particularly in the northern hemisphere. So we in the UK might get a really good view of it in the last couple of weeks of the year. But we'll just have to wait and see. It's, I'm afraid, one of those things where comets are a bit like cats. The description is that they have tails and they do exactly what they want.
2: What's that thing about the structure of the object?
1: The difficulty in understanding their activity is that they can have a variety of materials. I mean, they have ices, mostly frozen water, but other gases as well inside. And when they get close to the sun, that stuff from being ice to gas because you need some kind of atmospheric pressure for material to become liquid so it doesn't go through that phase. Now the determining factor is really how much of it's exposed if the comma has quite a thick rocky crust or debris crust or dusty crust then it's much harder for the heat of the Sun to reach inside and it also there are fewer vents for the material to come out if on the other hand that's rather thinner then you'd expect more of the material inside to come out so probably those factors the
2: memory when iSON actually makes its closest approach to the sun in November, it's going to be actually quite incredibly close. That will be a very extreme environment that those ices will be exposed to.
1: Well ISON is going to go within about one point one million kilometers from the sun's surface and given the sun is one point three million kilometers across, that's really a very close approach indeed. Now there's again a lot of debate about exactly what will happen because there was another object, Comet Lovejoy, that made a similar approach a couple of years ago and turned out to be quite robust, it actually came through quite well, and there was a paper by the astronomer of Scott and John Brown on this um, around the same time, and he pointed out that you have to consider that although it's a hot environment, being that close to the sun quite clearly, there isn't much in the way of a solar atmosphere at that point, so objects can pass through it. It's um, the ones that plunge directly onto the solar surface clearly are going to be destroyed. But further out, it's, it's a lot harder to tell. So I think the jury's out on whether it will survive. If it does survive, it may turn out to be a very nice comet indeed. We, we just don't know.
2: Now, I gather you've been especially interested this month in a paper about lead concentrations in the atmospheres of stars.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. There's a team at Armagh Observatory have been looking at this unusual sort of star called helium-rich subdwarfs. Now, that re- requires a bit of explanation. Uh, basically, these are stars that have a much higher concentration of helium than our Sun, for example, because they've gone through quite a lot of their lives, and they've used up a lot of hydrogen fuel. And even more exotically, in this case, they've gone through the stage that the Sun will go through, too, of becoming a, a red giant star, shedding their outer atmosphere. Um, they're doing that early for some reason and what you're left with is a, a part of the star that's still doing its nuclear reactions and so converting hydrogen to helium, but there's a lot of helium there. What the team have found is that even more exotically, two of the stars they looked at seem to be incredibly rich in lead and what they think is happening is
2: think of stars as being all much the same they're all clouds of hydrogen and helium and they're all producing energy in a similar way with nuclear fusion what fundamentally is making these stars different
1: well i mean the difference in this case is that it's an exotic subclass and the researchers actually say they're not certain about their origin and evolutionary track but what seems to be the case is that they're evolved they've gone a long way through their lives and so they've used up a lot of turning hydrogen to helium and that reaction releases a lot of energy the amount of helium is much higher and added to that if you lose all that out your hydrogen as well then you've got an object which it looks very different to stars like the sun really quite odd things it's very hard to say what their fate will be but they are certainly very different to our sun and there's a whole wealth of objects like this as well i mean you only have to think about white dwarfs the remnants of stars like the sun obviously very different to during the bulk of its life black holes as well you know once were stars at least the majority of them we find in the galaxy so you know there really is something of a menagerie of objects but in another sense i mean most of their properties are determined just by how much mass there is because that dictates how strong their gravitational field is and affects their brightness so you know more massive stars look very different to much less massive ones
2: and of course people always say that we are stardust and that all the heavy elements in the solar system came ultimately from stars So I guess it's stars like these are really affecting what we would imagine the universe is made of.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, it depends on the fate of this star. It doesn't seem likely to me that these lead-rich stars are likely to become supernovae and so violently distribute their material into space in an explosion. But even if they just blow it off in the form of dust, that would enrich their surroundings. And you're right. If you run the clock forward billions of years in the future, some of that lead may end up on planets like our own. It's exactly where all these elements came from. And virtually everything heavier. Helium, actually, was made in stars. There's a little bit of lithium and beryllium formed in the early years of the universe, but beyond that, everything else is made in stars. So without a generation of stars having lived and died, not only would the Earth not be here, but we certainly wouldn't either.
2: That was Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. It's time now to dip into Naked Astronomy's postbag and to answer some of your questions. And John Bondi has got in touch. In one of the podcasts I put out from the National Astronomy Meeting in July, Catherine Haymans from the University of Edinburgh talked us through the evidence for dark matter. She explained that galaxies like the Milky Way appear to be rotating faster than physics can easily account for.
8: So let's think about our own Milky Way galaxy. So we've got stars that are spinning round in our own Milky Way galaxy. And you can look how fast they're moving round. And you can do this in lots of galaxies as well. Now, if you imagine a a piece of string and a ball on the end of a piece of string, you can swing that ball around. Now, the faster you swing that ball around, the tighter you've got to hold onto the string. OK, what does this mean for our galaxy? Well, the ball is now your stars. And there's no string that's holding the stars as they go round our galaxy. It's gravity. You get lots of gravity if you've got lots of mass. And we can see how fast the stars are moving round. We can roughly count how many stars there are in a galaxy. We know roughly how much a star weighs. And there just simply isn't enough gravity in our galaxy to keep those stars going round. They're just moving too fast. And so that means there must be extra mass there, which we call dark matter, to keep those stars going round. If there wasn't a big halo of dark matter around our own Milky Way galaxy, all the stars would just simply fly out into the universe.
2: But what John wants to know is why we talk about dark matter as being such a strange, exotic material. We know that black holes exist and that there are probably lots of faint stars in the universe that we can't see. So couldn't these account for the missing mass that hold the galaxy together? I asked Ross Church at Rolund Observatory what he thought.
0: So the first thing is we can work out how much dark matter there is in the galaxy it turns out by looking at how fast the stars in the outer part of the galaxy move. And there aren't many stars in the outer part of the galaxy, so we would expect to find that the speed with which they go around the centre of the galaxy goes down as you go further out through the galaxy. But instead we find that it remains roughly constant from quite near the centre of the galaxy all the way out to the edge, and from this we infer that there's a large amount of matter missing. And it turns out that this fits quite well with a picture that we get from looking at the cosmic microwave background. Then the second thing is we can measure the total mass in the universe in what's called baryons. Those are protons, neutrons and electrons, particles that we're familiar with. And we can do that because we know that very early on, the universe was much hotter and denser than it is today. And the baryons in the form of hydrogen then reacted together to form helium. And in fact, the density of that baryonic material of the protons in the early part of the universe determines what fraction of them turned from hydrogen into helium. Then we can measure that ratio of hydrogen to helium by looking at low-mass stars inside the galaxy. And in those stars the material has not had chance to be processed, gone through nuclear reactions within the stars itself. And what we find is that about a quarter of that material has been transformed from hydrogen into helium. And that tells us that the total fraction of the mass in the universe is about
2: 2%. So the Sun is turning hydrogen into helium by nuclear fusion, that same process was happening in the very early universe. And by seeing how much of that hydrogen was turned into helium, you can actually determine how much mass there was in the very early universe.
0: Exactly so, yes.
2: If dark matter was in the form of compact objects, would you be able to observe them when they came close to the sun, for example?
0: It turns out that you would. But, in fact, the best place to see them is when they're located halfway between here and the centre of the galaxy. And to do that, you look at a large number of stars in the the galactic bulge in the centre of the galaxy, and if a compact object, such as a black hole or a low-mass star or even a free-floating planet, comes between the star and you and very precisely across that line of sight, then its mass causes the light coming from the star towards you to be focused. It acts as what's called a gravitational lens. So in practice, what you see is the brightness of that star increases very sharply and then goes back down again. And you can measure the timescale on which it brightens and becomes faint again And from that, you can measure the mass of the compact thing, which you, of course, never see, that passes in front of the line of sight. And actually, by doing that, what you find is that the number of compact objects, such as black holes, is consistent with the population of stars that we see inside the galaxy. So in other words, basically, all of the stellar-mass compact objects in the galaxy have been made within the galaxy by the stars of the galaxy.
2: Thanks, Ross. That was Dr. Ross Church from the Lind Observatory. And if you've got a question you want us to tackle, you can get in touch by sending an email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. Earlier in the podcast, we spoke to Leonard Lindegren and David Hobbs about the Gaia Space Telescope. As we heard, Gaia scientists hope that by mapping out where the Milky Way stars are, how fast they're moving, and how old they are, they can wind back the clock to work out where those stars formed. One of the astronomers who's looking forward to doing those calculations is Sophia Feltzing. She's working on surveys with ground-based telescopes, which will complement the data coming back from Gaia. But she explained that while Gaia is very good at measuring how fast stars are moving across the sky, it's not very good at measuring whether those stars are moving towards or away from us.
9: So in order to see how the stars are actually moving in the galaxy in 3D, not just on the sky, we need that third dimension of the velocity. And we can do that from the ground very well. Radial velocities today can detect planets very, very accurately circling around other stars and the precision there is enormous. So the requirements are easily met by ground-based telescopes and instrumentations that already exist today. However, even if the technology is there, the type of spectrograph you need is not there. You need to be able to take a 1,000 spectra in one go or maybe up to 3,000 covering several square degrees on the sky, so several moons in one go. And you can do that by building new spectrographs
2: so you're looking at these spectra and you're working out how fast the star is moving along the line of sight yes. by looking for spectral features which are being redshifted?
9: That's correct. And we don't call it redshifted when we're looking at stars. We just say that they are shifted. It's the velocity. I mean, as we always talk about redshift because it's the galaxies are moving away from us, but the star could be moving towards you. In the universe, the galaxies are moving apart, but in the galaxy, things are moving in many different ways. So you have a set of spectral features that you will measure how much they change relative to the lab wavelength.
2: And once you've got this huge catalogue of stars around the Sun and how they're moving, what scientifically can you learn from that catalogue?
9: So the important thing is not just around the Sun we're looking anymore. That was the Hipparchus satellite. The Hipparchus satellite is looking... I mean dwarf stars like the solar-like stars is only within 100 parsecs of the Sun. Now Gaia will see sun-like stars 20 times or more further away with equally good precision. So a so-called G-dwarf star like the sun will still be very bright in Gaia terms when it is 2000 parsecs away which is a quarter of the distance to the galactic center from us. So we can see stars like the sun almost into the galactic centre, knowing where they are in the sky and how they move. But that's not the only thing we can get from spectra. So basically what you do is you're splitting the light from the star up into its wavelengths. Just like putting a prism in front of a sunbeam, and you see all the colours is what we do in a spectrograph. But you can do this with very high resolution, so that the smallest element you're looking at is really a tiny little bit of an angstrom. Perhaps you've seen how from the sun, if you split up the light... In the rainbow colors, there are dark areas in there, dark lines across. And those are absorption lines in the solar spectrum because there are elements like iron, oxygen, and carbon in the outer atmosphere of the star. And each element has its unique fingerprint of such absorption lines. And from these absorption lines, we can calculate how much there is of a given element in a star. And the beauty of the dwarf stars, the solar like star, is that. They live for a very long time, and not much happens to them. They're dead boring. For people who like to study how stars behave, how they evolve and things, these stars are not very exciting. They're really actually quite dull. But they're very good because nothing happens in their outer atmospheres at all. I mean, there's nuclear burning going on in the center, but you don't notice it on the surface most of the time. And therefore, if you can measure how much iron, oxygen, carbon, chromium and titanium there is in the outer atmosphere of this star you have a fair sample of the composition of the gas that this star formed out of.
2: I guess something you really want to know though is how old those stars are and it must be quite difficult to date them if they're not changing very much.
9: Right so yes there are many ways of dating stars but it all has to do of us understanding how stars evolve and these stars are deemed rather good because there is clear signatures when you put them in certain diagrams where you have the stellar evolutionary model and the temperature and the mass of the star, for example, you can see how old it is. They can be fairly large errors on them. It depends really a lot on the exact star. Stars like the sun can be dated within, say, a billion years. And the universe is 13 billion years and the oldest stars we find are at least 10 billion years or something like that. Now there are more evolved stars, so called red giants which you can date very well and there are two satellites Corot and Kepler who are studying very small pieces of the sky not like Gaia who's going to study the whole sky. They are studying particular regions but they get very good astero seismology data so they will be able to age data stars very very accurately and combining those data with the Gaia data they will also put very strong constraints on the stellar evolutionary models. But we would be happy with very large samples of stars that we can age date within a billion years because then we can see how the larger properties of the galaxy vary as a function of the distance from the galactic center. Not anymore looking at things just near the sun but how things vary as a distance from the galactic center.
2: Once you've got this catalogue of where the stars are, how they're moving and what types of stars they are, I guess that's telling you about the history of the Milky Way, when these stars were forming and where.
9: So the idea is that all of these are bits of a kind of jigsaw puzzle that you're trying to put together. It's a little bit like archaeology where you're getting pieces of a vase up and you dust them off and you find that they fit together. There might be bits that are missing, but then you can guess what they would look like. So in the past, you see, it has been often like people work on dynamics of the Milky Way or the stars, how they move and why they move like they do, or their ages and their elemental abundances. But we will really, truly need to combine this much more. And even if we know what it looks like very close to the sun within a few hundred light years, and we know a little bit of what it looks like in the center of the galaxy and out in the halo, we know very little what is in between. And actually, Gaia is going to help. When it comes to galactic chemical evolution or galactic evolution, a lot of what we have been inferring has historically been gleaned just from the very, very solar neighborhood, which is a tiny, tiny, tiny piece of the Milky Way and doesn't really tell us about the global properties. Now, when it comes to all this ground-based follow-up, we will need, as I said, to build new instruments. Although there are instruments that already can do some of it. So with around 300 other astronomers in Europe. I am part of a project called the GAIA-ISO Survey. So it's GAIA, for GAIA, an ESO for European Southern Observatory, which owns and runs in collaborations of 15 different countries, the La Sea Observatory in Chile and the ALMA Observatory. And there we are using the FLAMES spectrograph that takes about 100 plus spectra, of stars in one go it's not perfect for this purpose but it's pretty good it's looking at a rather small piece of the sky so we would like something with a bigger field of view and therefore the proposal is and ESO has actually accepted to go forward with this proposal to build a completely new machine to measure several thousands of spectra in one go and this is called foremost and is planned to go on the Vista survey telescope Right now, so GAIA-ISO survey is running. We are aiming at 100,000 stars and we've already been observing for a year and a half now and it's going well. We are getting the data analysis underway and starting to write the first papers.
2: My thanks to Sophia Feltzing from the Lund Observatory. That's all we've got time for this month. But as always, you can find more on our website at thenakedscientist.com astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Dominic Ford, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.